I'm actually going to pray before we read uh, the scripture today for our message and pray for a few things as we investigate. Father, we are needy people, and we don't approach you as those who have things figured out or as sufficient in ourselves. We come as those who need your grace on a daily basis, and not only do we need your grace on a daily basis, we need your presence, your wisdom, and uh, we need Christ himself always. So I pray that as the words of your servant Peter are explained and expounded, that we would be able to feast on what you've revealed to us and how you describe to us who you are and what you did for us. And I pray that you would give us understanding. Uh, There are a lot of things to consider uh, with the themes at work at the beginning of such a letter as First Peter, and I pray that um, that we would be equipped in our hearts with the strength to receive it. And I also pray, Father, that you would unify our church. I, I, I pray this not because of disunity, but because uh, we want to increase all the more in our unity, that people of different ages and different life situations would be united in love with each other so that we could truly portray the beauty of what you have done in your son, Jesus. Pray against factions and pairings off of different people, of uh, different persuasions as we deal with some theological things that are difficult and that may uh, cause a retreat to our comfortable camps. I pray against that and that we would be humble to embrace your word. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. First thing to say is that uh, in terms of scope for this message, we're really only going to cover verse 1. Uh, As the title indicates, there are three things that we'll investigate with respect to this passage. Number one, election. It is in the text, so we will talk a little bit about it. Number two, the status of being an exile. And in particular, in some ways, being elected to be an exile. And then number three, the multinational aspect of this group of people. At least in where they are and in some ways from where they're from. Next week, the primary emphasis will be verse 2, and we'll drill down on what the Father, Son, and Spirit all do together in salvation, and to what end, more specifically. So there's just too much to cover, really, in this all-important phrase, elect exiles, and all the rich treasure of encouragement found in 
verse 2 to cover in one sermon, and I'm trying to stop keeping you in this room for so long. I want you to linger, maybe in this room, but not while you're just sitting there listening. Uh, Don't leave quickly unless there's an emergency. Part of the point of being the body of Christ is that you linger and talk and discuss maybe even the sermon, but it doesn't have to be, but embody what the scriptures say. Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Do those things. We're just giving you an opportunity to do that on a Sunday morning. So we're trying to keep the focus a little bit narrower today. And again, we come to the first words, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And we've examined this man, Peter, Simon Peter, at length, and we have investigated his apostleship and the implications of his apostleship at length. You can listen to those sermons, so we're not going to review those necessarily. Um, and, you know, it's interesting, I was mentioning this uh, before Sunday school this, this morning, that uh, a sermon on apostleship, which was all that last Sunday was. I received more comments about that message than almost any other message I've preached here in three years. And that doesn't mean that I'm an exceptionally good preacher. It just means that the people of God are blessed when you drill down on actual things that are important. You live on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Uh, So we're not in a hurry (laughs) to skip over important things like that. I know I'm convinced and I'm uh, confirmed in believing this, that the people of God are blessed when they are exposed to the content of God's Word. So, there's one more obvious thing that bears mentioning that we actually didn't talk a ton about specifically in those last two messages. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. When I first moved here, uh, around three years ago, uh, I was bivocational and I worked at uh, a financial institution downtown. They closed their branch nine months after we moved here, so we had to figure things out. So, Uh, But because I was constantly sending emails, both for my client service job in a financial firm and for the church, I always, as you know, if you're a member of this church, you know I signed my emails in Christ. And I almost sent a message, work-related, signed in Christ to people in my division. So how we sign things and, and the way we associate ourselves to Christ matters. Peter Peter is sending a letter, as we will see in a little bit, that he intended to be circulated in some way throughout a massive area of land, basically all of modern-day Turkey, and he is signing it as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit sends about as broad of an email as you can send. (laughs) And he says that he's an apostle. One of my managers, when I was in the financial realm, accidentally did a send-to-all email, and she was just a grunt on the front lines like I was. She sent it all the way up to the president of the the company, and it was some details about child care and her availability for some company function. So everyone in the company learned about that, about her. So that was kind of her claim to fame. But Peter, a former Galilean fisherman, is seeking to have a significant measure of authority and influence in the lives of people 
that, to the people that he's writing, and he claims to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. And, and he is claiming to have that kind of authority in their life to be able to tell them how to live and how not to live because he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. What's the point? Why, how is this adding anything to what was said last week? Well, listen, if the resurrection were a farce, a letter written about 20 years, 20 at the most 30 years after the original events, would not have stood at all. Peter explicitly claims that Jesus is alive and that he, Peter himself, at the time of this writing, is under Christ's authority as his apostle. You can't do that unless all the eyewitnesses of the events back in Palestine will back you up. People could go and ask those who were around at the time, did this really happen? He tells them to live. Listen to me because Jesus is alive and has authorized me to tell you these things. Within 20 years. The gospel, and I need to say this to you, okay? The gospel does have a lot of things to do with how we should live. There are a lot of wise ways of living connected with, to Christianity, but that is not primarily what Christianity is about. The gospel, in some ways, could be understood simply as news. Good news about what God has done in Jesus Christ. It is the objective reality of the events surrounding the life, death, burial, and resurrection, and eventual return of Jesus. And so that has implications for how we ought to live. But understand, when we preach the gospel, when we try to get people to believe and to come to terms with God and to live their lives according to it, we're not just saying, get your act together, dear sinner. Uh, do better, right? That's the popular motif of, of our day. Why can't you just figure it out? It is, this is what has happened. These events are true. Jesus Christ is alive. That is the essence of our message. And because of that, you must obey him. He is who he said he was. He's alive today. That is the message of the gospel. And don't confuse the two. We can spend a lot of time, and we're going to see the ways that this can run very, very wrong in our posture towards the world as Christians. We can talk a lot and spend a lot of time preaching about how to be a Christian, meaning the way to live your life, or how culture should be in accordance with Christian principles and not talk about the news, the events that make all of that make sense. Paul himself says that if Christ has not been raised, then it's futile. We're the most to be pitied. If that news of those events aren't real, then there's no reason to live your life with such a rigorous religious effort. There's no point. The gospel is news, and, and Peter claims to be an apostle of Jesus Christ who's alive and giving him the authority in real time to tell these people how to live. And he addresses his letter, as we see, to those who are elect exiles. It could be worded to to the elect who are exiles. And so we have to deal with this word elect. The majority of our discussion of this word and the theological concept of election will be covered next week because that's how the grammar of these verses work. If you look at it, there's, there's kind of a split in the grammar of the sentence. To those who are elect exiles, and then 
a parenthetical of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God. So we're elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Christ Jesus for sprinkling with His blood. So we'll address all of that next week. But we are going to talk about what election means and why it's being listed here as a specific designation of God's people. It is very important to state at the outset that this word means what you think that it means. Peter is borrowing an Old Testament term that is usually used to apply to God's people and he is describing the new covenant of believers as God's chosen ones. The word means chosen. And since it's in, it's in the noun form, not a verb, just though, you know, like that God elects, it is we are designated now as in, in a noun form by what God has done. I don't know what to say to those who take issue with the doctrine of election. You have to have an an effective doctrine of election somehow. You have to have some understanding of it because it is in the Bible. You have to believe that God elects somehow. How he elects and why, we will see next week. But you cannot say that you believe in the Bible... As, as the word of God, and say you don't believe in any doctrine of election. It just can't be done. The word is there. You are the elect of God. Again, what that means, how it all happened, we'll discuss next week. The only way you could get around this, let me just show you your one out. <clears throat> the only way you could get around this being applied to you is to say that this letter is only for Jewish Christians. Only for those who were once Jews and became Christians. Even now, meaning that this letter even now is not for you as a Christian, but for Jews who became Christians. So you can't apply this to you at all. It's only for them. But we'll see in a bit how that just won't work at all. Next week we'll talk about the cause, the means of election in real time, and the purpose of election. But for now... We must simply rest in the reality that if you are in Christ, in the most ultimate sense, it is because of God's election. That is the simple testimony of Scripture. Again, we can debate about the ordering of events when it comes to how you are saved in real time. But at the bottom of it all, The rock-solid encouragement for you is, just as John tells the church in his letter, we love because he first loved us. And as Jesus tells his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you that you may bear much fruit. It's almost as if that same encouragement that Jesus spoke to them, I did, you did not choose me, but I chose you, Peter is now transferring to us and calling us God's elect. The counterpart word, chosen, it's the same idea, is used four times in 1 Peter, which is second only to Acts in the New Testament. And in 1 Peter, all of these refer to the people of God 
as their, the primary designation of that people as being chosen. What, what, what is, he, doesn't, he actually doesn't use the word church, interestingly, in, in all of 1 Peter. And probably the idea was, as we're going to see in a bit, they are quite literally exiles. They're spiritually exiles, but they're literally exiles maybe from Rome. And so they're displaced, and they may not even have gathered together in churches yet. But he calls them chosen. Now, including this one, five times. That's the primary designation. So just ask yourself a question. Does your theology need to change? Again, I'm trying to show as much deference as I can. There are legitimate debates that we can have over some of the implications and nuances of this doctrine. But I fear that many in this room even may disagree with the Holy Spirit and with the Father and with Jesus and the Apostle Peter and would rather have had him call believers the one who chose versus the chosen. The encouragement, again, this is the point. We're not not here to debate one line or another or one camp or another, but the encouragement and the profound reality is, is the security and comfort available to you in this truth. Do you understand? Whose idea is this? Why am I here? Why am I an exile? Why are things so hard? Why, why do things go like they do when I try to follow Jesus? Is it a mistake I made? Is it that I'm not doing the Christian life right? Like I haven't figured it out or unlocked the combination so that it's easier? Is there some better way to do it? Are we just bungling this whole thing up? You can do that by sin. But in our attempts to follow the Lord Jesus and the utter futility that you will run up against as you try to do so, take Courage, brothers and sisters, you're in this because of God's own choosing. It's his idea. You're in this because of God. The Christian life, as it is, even full of disappointment and opposition, as we'll see, following the example of Christ is just as Peter says in chapter 3, verse 9, to this you have been called that you may obtain a blessing. God has chosen to bless you unfathomably in Christ. And it is His idea. And that is the foundation of your security and your confidence in God. He has destined you for this very thing. We're not only elect, we are exiles. And this would be an encouraging Uh, message if he just called us elect, but he gives us this category of exiles, an exilic existence, as it were. Now, I, I have to do this because this word is of central significance to the letter. You might be looking at a translation of the Bible where it says sojourners or pilgrims, uh, other ideas that are similar, maybe resident alien, uh, refugee, Different ways of translating, or maybe just foreigner. Uh, there are many different ways of legitimately translating this word. So the problem is, which one do you choose? Because all of them have slightly different shadings of meaning, as we'll see. And all of them will influence how you take the rest of the book. The commentary I'm, I'm using uh, 
to help me in some places, uh, Karen Jobes, she says this, this word is used in the first century to designate someone who did not hold citizenship in the place where he resided and was therefore viewed as a foreigner. So why does this matter? As I said, each word signals a different reality. If you're a sojourner, that means one thing. If you're a resident alien, that means another. If you're a pilgrim, that means something else. If you're an exile... That means something else, too. So I I want to uh, help you understand your relationship with the world. That's that's the point of this. What is the Christian's relationship to the world? You're either a sojourner, a pilgrim, a resident alien, or an exile, just based on this word. So we need to answer what it is. So... and. And we need to understand some of the issues that the Christians that Paul is, uh, Peter rather, is writing to. I'm going to do that several times in this whole study. It's so easy to just say Paul. Uh, here, here are some issues that uh, Winland, another commentator, lists that the Christians were facing in 1 Peter. Number one, they faced physical and psychological pressure. Number two, they faced social ostracism and exclusion. Number three, they faced potential pull from the former pagan way of life. Number four, they experienced a surrounding and seductive non-Christian worldview. Number five, they experienced tensions and inconsistent behavior within their fellowship. Number six, they experienced spiritual doubts about the reliability of God's promises and the future. Number seven, they faced Satan's constant deadly temptations and trials. So depending on how you take that word, it gives some direction and some help about how to respond to most of these problems. So this is me trying to show you my work, and we're going to go through these things very quickly to argue for exile and why that matters versus all the other options. For foreigner, a foreigner or resident alien, we'll take those together, what is the image? The image is we're not like them. We're utterly distinct and separate in beginning and essence. And while true... However, in an ethnically and religiously diverse Roman Empire, none of these words adequately represent the hostility and the levels of insults and maligning that they experienced. Here's what Peter says in 1 Peter 4.3, For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. There is real surprise. If they were resident aliens from a different culture and a different, completely different heritage or a different religion in their past, this idea wouldn't work. Rome was actually very tolerant to other nationalities, ethnicities, and religions, as long as you didn't disturb the peace. No, this is more than xenophobia. There is enough familiarity to expect them to participate in the flood of debauchery, and then real shock or surprise when they don't. So I don't think foreigner or resident alien really encapsulates this picture because of what is actually in 1 Peter. So what about sojourner? Uh, one of my mentors, he's pastor of a church. Uh, Sojourn is just the name of his church. I really appreciate that concept, and it's there. We'll see. It's in, in Hebrews, but I, I think it's just a little bit off. 
Um, the idea or the image is, I'm just here for a little bit. I'm just a passing through. This world is not my home. Those are very true. And I, and I actually think that is the right word in Hebrews 11.13. It says this, All these died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. It probably, the ESV renders it the same in both places, exiles, exiles. But I think in Hebrews 11, the word is better sojourner. Because of the hostility that these people are facing. Abraham was respected and even feared with many of the people that were surrounding him who lived in Palestine or in other places. You can be a sojourner and be respected. These people aren't. For comparison, uh, I'm sorry, uh, there is a stark context of suffering in, in 1 Peter. Uh, depending on how you count, the word suffering occurs 18 times in 1 Peter. They're going through it. For comparison, Romans, traditionally more associated with suffering, has the word only three times. Uh, 2 Corinthians probably has the most with the word affliction seven times, but nothing like 1 Peter, 18 times suffering. So sojourner doesn't cut it, I don't think. That, that's, unless the idea of sojourner were inherently connected with the idea of opposition from the host nation, which isn't always the case. might be the case for us, but isn't always the case. So what about pilgrim? What's the image there? We're coming up on Thanksgiving, not to freak you moms out and give you undue anxiety. Uh, just a few weeks away. Um, but every Thanksgiving, I live in a home where we got out our little pilgrim figurines. What does that word convey? Maybe they're fleeing religious persecution and they're here now, but the problem with that word is that the idea, I think, is to establish a new territory of your own possession and have it there and create your own rules and your sphere of influence and have all that just to yourself. You've left and now let's establish a new kingdom here. There's a territorialism or, or a political or cultural Christian objectives, and they begin to rise to the top. You might even try to establish a Christian nation, and that becomes the directive, maybe even to usher in the millennia. We have to understand that that framework, that idea of pilgrims, and we're leaving and we're going to establish something new and create a Christian nation, that was on the minds of our founding fathers, but I don't think that's what Peter is saying here specifically because he charges his readers to be submissive to the ungodly, very secular forms of government that existed in that time. And further, he does not want them to create Christian neighborhoods or Christian enclaves in places where they live. He wants them to be a witness by their respectable and pure conduct. This is what he says in chapter 2, verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So I don't think pilgrim will work. Here's a theological framework and why exile and why you should think of yourself as being an exile and not a pilgrim, sojourner, though those ideas are true as well, but especially exile. Number one. The original audience, and by analogy, all Christians, had a former home prior to become, becoming Christians. 
They, the, the original audience could have been from Rome, and one of the going theories is that they were actually expelled from Rome because they were Christians, and they were sent to these different provinces to be part of these colonies in Rome. So they had a former home, and now because they became Christians, they don't have it. Through Number two, through affiliation with Jesus then, this former home has now rejected them, treating them as foreigners or as aliens, but with some serious degree of hostility. Number three, this was not merely or primarily by the choice of these exiles to get into this situation, but by their homeland. They didn't choose to be in exile. The homeland kicked them out. And ultimately, it's due to God's own choosing that they are this way. Number four, yet the end of the exile is not marked by return to whatever homeland they came from or even to the so-called holy land, but rather by the end of the age. See, this is why I think we have to take it this way. These Christians who were kicked out of Rome or kicked out of wherever they went, would they still be exiles if they returned to their home? Town. We don't have many native Idahoans in this congregation, but let's say you went back to wherever you came from, most of us California. If you go back there and you live there, are you still in exile, according to this, in the theological framework of what Peter is saying? I'm saying yes, because our home has rejected us, and you maintain that status of exile regardless of where you go. Number five, therefore, the Christian is never at home in this world. We are sojourners, but in the midst of a hostile environment from which we have been expelled. So exile, I think, is the best understanding of this term as it relates or applies to all Christians. Number six, the exile theme fits best because it unites the people of God into one metaphor. The Jews were in exile, and now the church is in exile. Number seven, it applies best to explain the situations Christians are in at any time in the history of the church. If you're a pilgrim, you're going to look at all the problems that we face, and in response, you'll want to attack it with a chest-out, brawny, deus volt posture and try to subject the unbelieving world to our standards and create some kind of theocracy or reestablish Christendom. Or at least create a new one where you're from or where you are. Fight back! If you're a resident alien or a foreigner, you'll band together with other Christian foreigners and create your own circles of community where you will not have to interact that much with the world, but just with believers. You know, I I went to a a Bible college seminary where uh, we had a large percentage of our population was from one specific foreign country, about 30% of the student population. And they just hung out together. (laughs) They didn't assimilate at all. They didn't really learn English at all either because they were comfortable enough to just stick together and keep to themselves. And that's what we can tend to do as Christians. We'll just have our Christian spheres, our Christian clubs, our Christian hangouts, and that's what I think the idea is if we're just a resident alien If you're just a sojourner, and you'll just put your head down, wait patiently, and let the world burn, waiting for the sweet by and by. But if you are an exile, an elect exile at that, you will live with a confident boldness and hope. You will see that 
at the same time, these two things happening at the same time, there is real danger that you have been cast out by this world and you will know that home is not here. Both of those ideas together, the only word that makes sense is exile. You will also see and know that there will be an end to the exile at some point, but not yet. The Lord will bring vindication to the righteous, but not just yet. The Lord will bring vengeance and recompense on the wicked, but not yet. The Lord will remake and recreate the entire world, the utter recreation of the heavens and the earth to make it a suitable home for the adopted sons and daughters of God, but not yet. In the meantime, the destiny that we draw our hope from, this destiny given to us by the powerful working of God in Christ is something that we did not earn, but we must be ready to give an answer for that very hope. Consider the life of Jesus as it relates to this exile theme. This is what he was. This is how John relates his own story. He came to his own people and his own people did not receive him. The Son of Man has no place to lay His head. It's not just like, I don't have a place to sleep. There's no place that is home here yet. That's the same for you, believer. In this world, you will have trouble. They will hate you. It's not home. And we are in a hostile relationship with the world. Do not love the world or the things in this world. The things in this world are passing away. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. You know, we will be exiles until the day of of visitation when Christ returns. And you have to embrace that and understand that reality or you're just going to live at odds with the stage of redemptive history that we're in. If you have a plan or a way of thinking or a theological grid that has as its path a way to make it not the case that we're in exile, you're going to be at odds with what God is doing. And you're going to be constantly frustrated at the world. Not that we don't have reasons to be frustrated with the world, but we can't conform it. We will be exiles until Christ returns. You know, when we are the favored ones and when we're in power, things tend to go really, really wrong. You just have to know uh, just a surface level understanding of the last 2,000 years of history to know that's the case. It's better, brothers and sisters, to embrace your status as exiles. Don't you see? Understand this. This is how Christ is purifying his church. This is how he's getting you and me ready for the day of visitation to keep us in the status of being an exile. We will always be, number one, at odds with, two, living among, and three, opposed by the world. And not in charge. That is our destiny until he comes. And then he says... Elect exiles of the dispersion. The prevailing theory in ancient times was because of this world, 
uh, this word here, the dispersion, the diaspora, to take this, this letter as narrowly addressed to Jewish converts to Christianity. Recent scholarship is basically unanimous that, that we can't take it to mean that. Um, you know, it's funny, uh, we're talking about uh, election earlier, but I disagree with Calvin specifically on this point. He thought that we could only take First Peter as having been written to Jewish Christians. I think that is not workable as a theory. And here are four different verses in two different places in First Peter to show that it's not. And I, you'll just have to trust me. Don't get bored to tears about who is this actually written to because it actually bears quite a bit on your understanding of who you are and God's purposes in the world. Verse we already looked at, First Peter four three through four. For the time has passed that sufficed, for the time that passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do: living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. If these were Jews, why in the world would they be surprised if Jews didn't join them in the flood of debauchery? Jewish identity and Jewish morals and that, that sphere of behavior was well known throughout the Roman world. So they're, they're legitimately shocked. These Gentiles who are surrounding them are like, oh my goodness, you're not joining us in with this flood of debauchery? If they were Jews, there would be no surprise. In the second place, Uh, Verses 14 through 18 of chapter 1. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. And he goes on. So there's two statements. The passions of your former ignorance and you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. You would be hard-pressed to find anything in the New Testament with that degree of negativity towards Judaism. Especially when you compare it uh, to other places in the New Testament where it is actually referenced, like Romans 9, the opening of Romans 9. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. Very positive statements. And then then, uh, Paul commends Timothy because he was instructed in the Scriptures by his mother and grandmother. They were Jews. It would be very odd for Peter to then call all of that feudal ways, former ignorance. No, I think the best theory, the only workable theory, I think, to maintain is that this is written primarily to Gentile converts to Christianity. The, the only way that you can wiggle out that is to say, well, well, this is written primarily to very, very carnal, Hellenistic Jews, maybe. But I think that's a stretch, primarily because you see some of these same names of places in Acts chapter 2. And what Luke says when he's describing the group of people that were there to hear Peter's first sermons, he says there were devout men from every nation. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. So if these are the original converts to Christianity and then they go back to their home place, how can they be the carnal Jews to have this former ignorance? I just don't think it works at all. Hebrews, actually, is an example of how New Testament authors write to Hellenistic Jews, if you want to read through that. 
And lastly, this is, this is more an appeal based on what we saw about Peter two weeks ago. I cannot be convinced that a man who went through the drama of the conversion of Cornelius and after getting publicly rebuked by Paul and having to repent of a massive lapse in judgment at Antioch, that this same guy would so narrowly address just Jewish converts. And by this time, they would be the minority of converts to Christianity. The majority of the church by that time were, Jew- were Gentiles. So, I think the best supposition is that it is written to all believers mainly Gentile converts to Christianity, though many Jews assuredly were in the recipient. So why does this matter? Some of you might be super bored right now and not understanding why this has anything to do with anything. Three reasons why this matters massively. Number one, if it is written or since it is written to all those who trust in Jesus, Jew and Gentile alike, then Peter very comfortably without any defense or explanation or qualification, applies these treasured terms to non-Jewish Christians as well. Elect, as we're going to see in chapter 2, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. He's just taking that. This is something that the Jews would have instinctively understood. This is ours. This is us. And he's taking those terms and applying it to all Christians. That's massive. And from our passage, the most basic and fundamental word associated with the religious identity of the Old Testament people is chosen. And he just takes that and applies it to all believers in Jesus. Now, you are the chosen people of God. In short, Peter is saying, without feeling the need to defend it, that the chosen people of God includes all, both Jews and Gentiles alike, who trust in Jesus. Number two, if or since it is written to all those who trust in Jesus, Jew and Gentile alike, then the diaspora or the dispersion becomes an analogy for the current state of things in the world for Christians, even today. The diaspora, that was after the Babylonian exile, the Jews really never returned in full number to their homeland. And so there were Jews just all over the place, all over the known inhabited world. And that group of Jews all over everywhere was called the diaspora, the dispersion. And so Peter is taking that term, which would have intuitively been understood as a Jew as a negative term, because we're only in this situation because of exile, because of our sin. And he's saying that that designation, being in the diaspora, the dispersion, meaning we're not home yet, applies to all Christians now. And then lastly, if you were a native of the countries where this letter was written, you're still in dispersion. Think if you, if you were from uh, Galatia, and you had joined in with these Christians that had been kicked out of Rome, and you received this letter. Peter calls you an elect exile, part of the dispersion. So we need to understand who we are, and what our relationship with the world is, what our relationship with our homeland is even. Because of our affiliation with Jesus. There, are, there is a radical shift that occurs with your identity through allegiance to Christ. There's a song I really like. Uh, the course goes something like this. Uh, I'm headed home, but I'm not so sure that home is a place you can get to by train. Do you know, brothers and sisters, that once you believed in Christ, you have never been home? You're not home. 
the most comfortable setting you can have in your living room, whatever drink and appetizer and program on television that you like, sitting in that cozy blanket, whatever your ideal setting is, that is not home. You've never been home since you trusted in Jesus. You are an exile of the dispersion. And and until you get that, especially early on, you will be at odds with what God is doing in your life. You will try to chase home and chase a feeling of belonging that simply can't be had now. Home is where Jesus is. Home is not where the heart is. Home is where Jesus is. And He's here in some sense by His Spirit, but until we are with Him, until He stands upon the earth, having recreated all things and judged everyone and awarded us our position to rule with Him, we will not be home. And then He says in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, I'm not going to give you a geography lesson to see where these places are or have slides up on there to show you what it is. Uh, All of these are places, uh, all these places are provinces of the Roman Empire, uh, making up Asia Minor, modern day Turkey. I've already told you that. Um, As I've already mentioned, it's an area about the size of of California, a little bit bigger. Huge area. Um, Consider, just, just think as an aside, how much work it would have taken. When Peter writes this, <laughs> it's easy nowadays to just send to all. <laughs> you can click the wrong button with your email. But with him, he's expecting this to be taken to all the Christians now living in the dispersion in all of Asia Minor. So he's anticipating and planning for it to be copied and taken. He understands his authority. And he's saying, spread it around. I want everyone to obey this. That's, that's just amazing. But notice that the title of the sermon actually uses the wrong preposition. These are the things I think about, unfortunately. You can pray for your pastor. So this is intentional. Allow me to explain. So look at what he says. In Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. If we were just to go to the grammar of this verse, the title of the sermon would be Elect Exiles in Every Nation. So why have I chosen the idea from? But keep, keep in mind everything we've said about the dispersion. We are expelled from our homeland, even if you're still living in your homeland because of your affiliation with Jesus. So we're in every nation, but in a most fundamental sense, we are being taken out of every nation. If you're involved in the Bible reading plan, this week I had you read certain key covenants in the Bible. And you might be scratching your head, how does that relate to this message? Well, God's plan has always been to create a people who lived in every place. The first command to the man and woman was, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. It's reiterated to Noah after God hit the reset button with him and his family through the flood. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. And in the two covenants with Abraham, And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven, number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And Paul actually draws all these ideas together in Romans 4. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through righteousness of faith. 
That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise, the promise to Abraham may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only the, the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of his all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. What does this all have to do with the dispersion? And further, what does it all have to do with us today? You really really need to understand what the Lord is doing and why. And we need to see and celebrate deep continuity between what He began to do even in His first commands to our first parents and what He's doing now. We need to understand that our current suffering and opposition of the world is best understood under the heading of what God is doing, not what the world is doing. There's one story. There's no plan B. There are several ways to, do, to view that one plan, but this is one of them. God's plan from the beginning was to have the earth full of those who would worship Him. The plan was always to grant and give as a possession the world and all that is in it to those who trust in the Lord. That was His plan. And that is why through sharing the faith of Abraham, the promises made to Abraham are now yours because he trusted God. And that was the basis of the promise to him. So you share in the faith of Father Abraham and you're part of the offsprings as well. Being in the dispersion, I mean, this isn't an encouraging term. You need to understand that. He's, he's not essentially giving you something comforting to think about as being in the dispersion, but this communicates an idea. Being, being outside of the land represented an existential threat to the people of God in the Old Testament. We are at odds with God's promise to us because we're not in the land. What are we to do? We've got to return somehow. We've got to figure out a way to reestablish the kingdom. And this is why the disciples of Jesus themselves were confused. Will you at this time restore the kingdom? When are you going to kick out Rome? Lord, when are you going to reestablish the throne of your father David? And so Jesus goes to the cross, dies, rises from the dead, goes up into heaven, and we're still in the dispersion. So what is he doing? The wisdom of God in this, at work in this, shows that having a narrow focus on the land, the specific sliver of land between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea, is a misplaced emphasis. Paul says, I already read it, but the significance of it can't be overstated. The promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world? You can't, you can't dump, you can't take that word out and just put in Palestine. The promise to Abraham is no less than him and his descendants would become the heir of the entire world. All that exists. The scattering of God's people to all nations is exactly how He is going to give the inheritance of the world to those who trust Him. This is how He is building His kingdom of priests. He's gathering in His fold and He is calling together His royal priesthood. Just a few points of application for this and we'll be done. Number one, the Gospel comforts us because it is founded on the soul-stabilizing truth of being chosen. You know, I've made some decisions in my life, not necessarily sinful at all, that have just turned out really, really badly. 
led to either great financial loss or great pain or harm to other people, and it was because of a lack of understanding or I didn't, uh, didn't know all of the implications, and we just can't know the future. We don't know the real cause and effect relationship many times. Was it a mistake that you believed in Jesus and things got harder? <laughs> because you're misunderstanding the nature of reality and the relationship with the Lord that, that it's not really working out? No, the comfort is that you're not ultimately in this thing because of a decision you made. Your decision is important, but ultimately, the reason you're in this thing, the reason you're in this exile, the reason you're part of the dispersion, and the reason you're at odds with the world and can no longer find home is because God chose to make it so. Number two, the gospel gives us confidence in spite of being exiles. The message of the gospel of Jesus transforms all of the hardship we endure, all of the opposition from the world, all of their rejection of us, all of the, 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 the frustration of being in exile. Like, it's not a fun thing. It transforms all of that, all of those series of unfortunate events into discipline. The Lord is preparing you for the day of visitation. He is getting you ready to come into your inheritance because here's not home yet. And He is guaranteed that it will be so for your sake. Number three, the gospel gives us courage in view of the hope for the end of the exile. We're not always going to be exiles, brothers and sisters. We won't always be in the dispersion. You just read the prophecies of the Old Testament, so many of them, if you just take them at face value, these clearly haven't come to fruition yet. They're too big. They're too all-encompassing. They're too all of the world. The, the glory of the Lord will fill the earth, will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Like th- Those haven't happened yet. One day, the exile will end with the return of our king, our bridegroom, It won't always be this way. So just take courage. That's what we need. We need hope. We don't need to figure everything out and to fix everything. Jesus needs to come back. And that's what we need to be praying for as the people of God so that we will, in fact, be home. And lastly, the gospel grants cheerfulness because of God's plan coming to fruition. His people are from every nation. They are being sent to every nation. And they are in every nation as Jew and Gentile together. Even in this dispersion, in this non-ideal scenario of being at odds with the world and never being at home, God's kingdom is being built. And this is the exact way He has destined that it would be built. And one day, at the return of Christ, the sons of God will be revealed. Let us hope for that day. Father, we thank you for your wisdom at work. Help us not live at odds with what you're doing and the stage of redemptive history we are in. Help us embrace our status as exiles in the world. Help us understand your wisdom in causing us to be the dispersion among and from and in every nation. Help us have courage. Give us hope. 
Things will not always be this way. Help us view with pity and urgency those who are still friends with the world, knowing that when you return, friendship with the world will not be tolerated because the world will end and your word will stand forever. Help us bring your reconciling word to those who are at odds with you, who will then be in exile forever if they do not repent. In Jesus' name, amen.